Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where American lawyer and collector Roy Delbick is back to talk about the draw, the pull, the drug of collecting, what his fellow collectors collect, how to set your parameters or not, plus a few things he's discovered along the way. Like the autographs of three Beatles out of four, Roy talks to me from his office in Star House at Chimsa Choi, near where the Beatles stayed. He can read a bit of Russian, so has also tracked some of the Russian Jewish experience in China. There are posters, programs, an early menu from the Peninsula Hotel. Roy collects ephemera, paper items that often turn out to have a real human tale to tell. Maybe just a ticket to a show, or it could be a ticket or passport to escape. But first off, he tells me about how he first collected as a boy. I think you're born a collector. It's in your genes. So you know, as a kid, I collected stamps. I was a very stupid stamp collector because I actually pasted the stamps into my stamp album. I collected coins. I collected baseball cards and flipped them and scaled them. You know, with my friends. So flipped them and scaled them. Yeah. What you would do is. You would take the baseball card, and there'd be a wall, and then you would just sail it to the wall. Whoever got closest won all the other baseball cards. <laughs> and I collected, you know, in my twenties and thirties, antiques and whatnot. But then I would say, Amory, that the pilot light sort of went out on the collecting, raising kids. But then, about ten、mm, or eleven years ago, I was at the convention center. At a fair that's held each October, and there was Jonathan Wattis, my gateway drug. <laughs> and so this is antiquarian Jonathan Wattis of、yeah. Wattis Fine Art. So he's been here forty years. Correct. And <laughs> he had some paintings done in Peking, oh maybe nineteen hundred ish, by a guy Joe Pei Jun, and they were of vendors. You know, people selling textiles done on pith paper. It's kind of a rice, ricey paper.、And、I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And I had a little money from selling a Hong Kong apartment, and God, that was like all she wrote. And a genie came out of the bottle. I would say a very large genie. It's interesting, well, at least to me, sort of the the mutations, the transformations, maybe the maturations that occur. You know, where you start as a collector.、Mm. And where you end up, or at least where you evolve to, because it's always changing. So prior to that, you had, as you say, you'd bought antiques in your twenties and thirties. Then you have your family man. You're coming back out now.、Yeah. Those antiques before were they of you know Southeast Asia, China? Main, mainly China, but also some textiles, some lampungs from Indonesia. Yeah, but that had ceased for you know many many years. And then when I looked around,、uh, when I bought the initial purchases from Jonathan, I said, "Wow, you know, the furniture that we used to buy—it's so darn expensive." And you know, a little porcelain teacup, forget about it. But you could get really, really good books, although they weren't one of a kind necessarily. So I started buying books, largely about the West and China, the Western China intercourse, diplomatically, sometimes war or whatever. I felt I had to kind of buy, you know, the canon, go back to the 17th century. A lot of books, you know, not in English or not in Chinese. 
Italian, French. But then things started changing. Became less interested in the early stuff, much more interested in the 19th and 20th centuries, kind of starting around the time of, you know, Staunton, the first British embassy in 1792. And then within that, I became intensely interested in what I call ephemera. And ephemera is such a loosey-goosey term, but I'll give you the Roy Delbuck definition of ephemera. <laughs> and there's what I would call durable ephemera. Yeah. That is, I just showed you the St. John's College 1948 yearbook from Shanghai, very famous institution. And for sure, there was going to be a 1949 St. John's yearbook, although maybe not a 1950, I, I don't know. But there was going to be a succeeding parade of yearbooks. So it was very tied to that time. Maybe the only parties who were interested in it were the graduates of that class, but they weren't going to throw it away. So I, I call that a kind of ephemera, but of a more hardy, durable variety. The ephemera of sort of the less durable variety would be a movie ticket, you know, something that would be pitched or a laundry ticket. And it's amazing, Emery, what is still around, you know, and how does it still exist? You know, you ask this question all the time. How does it still exist? How many of them are there? Although with some ephemera, there's only one. And how did it get to me? The really personal stuff, you know, whether it be letters, diaries, things of, of that sort, I'd say that's kind of the beating heart of what I collect. I am a pretty broad-based collector. I would say wide bore, not narrow bore. I belong to the Hong Kong Collector Society, which is an organization of about 25 other loonies. Uh, we but yeah, so the Hong Kong Collector Society, which I, for me is an absolutely uh, fund of information. Yeah. But with, when you were saying about the sort of beating heart, I agree. It's that sort of, I, I'm just going to make up a term now. It's the human ephemera. It's, it's the... Absolutely. What it, what it is, is it, it evidences history in a way that I don't think you can get from a book. And sometimes when it's chronicling or, or tied to a very sad event, people dying in you know, the Boxer Rebellion, it really gets across the human cost of things, which I don't think you necessarily get from reading about it in a book. So there are people, for example, in the Hong Kong Collector Society who are more narrow bore. I think one of the members was born in Causeway Bay. So he wants to collect stuff about Causeway Bay. Another member is really into bottles. Maybe somebody else is trying to trade paintings. Maybe somebody else is stamps. Now I'm interested in envelopes, but I'm not so interested in the philatelic side of it. I'm interested in who sent it and who was it sent to. So it's just a wide variety of things that pique my interest connected to China or the Chinese people. I'd say about 10% of what I have relates to the Chinese in America. I violate the boundaries that I set up, you know, all the time in terms of, oh, I'm not going to go beyond, you know, 1980 in it for Hong Kong. and But then I do sometimes <laughs> if it's of interest. Does it, yeah, it depends on the, what it is, I suppose. Yeah, what it is. I would say the largest single component would be Shanghai, geographical component. Yeah, because we've just, uh, when I came into your offices here, you've got, you've got it laid out and you, and you said to me that because of the multi-themes that uh, you're interested in, you had to find a way to store and log it. Right. So you've gone geographically. Right. 
But within that, you've got all sorts, because as you say, you do do maps, photo albums. Posters. Yes. Um, and with you, do you go, right, okay, because you've just, I mean, we had a little tour before sitting down to record. We were having a look through, right. and you've got, as I say, some absolutely fascinating propaganda posters, for example. Right. Now, is that a case of that comes up at auction, or you're told about it, or have you already got a set list that you know of the existence? Ah, now you're getting into a really interesting thing, which I would call the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. <laughs> So the known unknowns, and this is almost like Donald Rumsfeld, our former Secretary of Defense speak, right? But applying it in the collecting area. The known unknowns are the things that you know are out there, but you haven't, you haven't put your hands around them. The unknown unknowns are the things that just absolutely blow your mind because you have no idea. And that's one of the real joys to come across that. So there's no set list to get back to your question. I mean, the poster that I showed you from 1959 to choose the entrant into, I think, the Miss World contest. Hong Kong. In Hong Kong. In Hong Kong. Held at the Peninsula Hotel. Who would have thunk, you know, that there would be... A poster like that and it never stops. in Chinese in Chinese and it never stops now speaking of Chinese your listeners may be wondering how good is this guy's Chinese and what I would say is my Chinese is sort of ma ma hoo hoo I speak some Mandarin I read some I write less and it's helpful but probably because my language ability is not anywhere near fluent I will tend towards stuff that's in English, but I have a lot of stuff in Chinese. I have a lot of stuff that in English and Chinese. I also read a little Russian, which is useful in terms of collecting things about the Jewish experience in China, because some of those materials are in Russian. I mean, if you're looking at the American experience in China, it wasn't a Jewish experience. It was a Christian experience. So I have tons of missionary stuff. But I'm always on the lookout for things about the Jews in Shanghai or Tianjin. Harbin. Harbin, yeah. Uh, But the Jews in Harbin, I think, largely moved down to Tianjin and Shanghai by by the 30s. So the Russian Jews that you've come across then, are they long established or are they all post-1918 as well? I would think, yeah, I would think post-World War I or, or during the tumult in Russia, because the tumult in Russia, World War I, and then the long-standing anti-Semitism. But you had all of these different Jewish communities. Of course, in the 30s, you had the Jews fleeing Hitler from all parts of, of Europe. And then, of course, you had the uh, Sassoons and the Kadoris. Yes. You had the, the Baghdadi slash Calcutta Jews. And just talking about how you just never know, you know, I read, as you may have, Jonathan Kaufman's book, you know, The Last Kings of Shanghai. About so that's about the Sassoons <coughs> and the Kadoris. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I have some th- photos of Victor Sassoon and some things related to Sassoon. 
I have some interesting things on the Peninsula Hotel, a menu very early on. Peninsula Hotel was open at the end of 28, and I have a menu for probably one of the first cruise ship passengers to kind of stay there in February 29. But I didn't have much about India. Again, you can only collect so much. But then, you know, once you know it, I saw a booklet about 1895, which was essentially the marketing plan of Christian missionaries in India to proselytize Jews. And it just lays out the census. Uh, So many Jews from the Middle East, so many Jews from Europe or whatever. So I said, well, is this a little bit off the beaten track? Ah, that didn't stop me. You know, (laughs) you just never know. Just, but with the Russian Jews, in when you said that you've picked up, what are you picking up? Russian ephemera, Russian books. Uh, well, one of the great things I picked up that related Tian, to Tianjin and Russian language, rather, yeah, yeah. Um, was in English and Russian. It's the yearbook, I think, of 1939 and 1940 of the Tianjin Jewish School, and it just gives us, you know, kind of wonderful insight into the community, particularly I think 1940, which was the 25th anniversary, you know, of the school passports. This wasn't Russians, this was uh, Germans. German passports with the, you know, the Nazi logo, you know, on the front issued to a mother and daughter. I don't know if the mom made it because she doesn't have the stamps in her passport. The daughter made it. Just always on the lookout. Now with your stuff, do you, um, you preserve it very well? You've got it all. uh... Uh, I violate... So many curatorial (laughs) rules. I'm sure, you know, when I've had, uh, you know, librarians here, they were absolutely aghast (laughs) at some of the things, you know, that I do. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, touch touch this. Although I read recently that gloves is absolutely kind of a no-no among certain people, that that gloves do more harm than just handling it. The way that I look at it is, and not to be too precious about it, I'm a steward in a sense. These things are with me. They're going to go someplace else. And I think I'm taking good enough care of them without kind of going crazoid about things that people with more money than I have do to preserve what they have. Yeah, I, I put it, a lot of the stuff in plastic. Is it mylar? No. It's some kind of plastic. We buy it in rolls. I think some vendor up in, 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 in Wan Chai. Another thing is that related to this. You know, I'll buy things that are in a bit of a state of disrepair, but I'll almost spend no money to repair. I'm not that interested in repair. I'm interested in acquiring. I want more stuff. So other people might say, oh, you know, you should really fix it. I I won't spend the money on that. I think a better use of my dollar is to buy more stuff. In terms of kind of another operating credo, uh, there's a great vendor in London, a German-English guy named Titus Boder who works for a bookstore, a very famous bookseller, Mags, which has been around for like 160, 170 years. I think it's the longest continuously held family bookstore. And Titus once said to me, and his words still resound, Roy, I can't do his German-English accent, Roy, don't be a completist. I said, Titus, what do you mean by, don't feel like you have to get every single magazine in a run, every single volume, and I don't operate that way. So I showed you, the Liangyos, uh, the Young Companion, which uh, the great Chinese uh, Shanghai-based uh, women's magazine with these fantastic covers started publishing in about 1925. The Liangyo Publishing Company moved to Hong Kong, I think, in the late 1930s and still might be going. I don't know. So I have volume 
or issue number three, issue number four, maybe issue number seven. Would I like to have issues one and two? Yeah. Do I lose sleep over it? No. You just got to go on. But there are some people, it becomes almost the life quest, a little quixotic, the way that I look at it. Oh, I've got to get, you know, every single one, you know, in a row. No, that, that doesn't bug me. One of the things over here, which is we're jumping decades, but uh, you showed me something with three out of four Beatles. Yeah. Wow. You'll never know how much I really love you. You'll never know how much I really care. Listen. Do you want to know a secret? Let's talk about the Beatles and Hong Kong. And as we know, the Beatles came to Hong Kong to perform in June 1964. They played at the Princess Theatre on Nathan Road near the Miramar Hotel today. And they were staying at the President Hotel which I think became the Hyatt, and then that was torn down, and now we have I-Square on Peking Road. So what I have is an autograph of three of the Beatles on President Hotel stationery, and it says President Hotel at the top with a logo, looks like a sailboat, and then at the bottom, P.O. Box, phone number, and the address. So how did this come to be? This came to be because one of the opening bands, there were two opening bands, but one of the opening bands was a Maori rock band called the Maori High Five, believe it or not. I think it was quite popular and it must have been an accomplished band because it was opening for the Beatles. And I believe the leader, there are maybe six members in the band, the leader was a guy named Wes Epai, E-P-A-E. The story goes that Wes went up to the President Hotel, to the Beatles hotel room, and the Beatles signed what I have in front of me. And it's signed by John, Paul, and George. And then it looks like Paul also signed Beatles. But you ask yourself, where is Ringo? That's a good point, Roy. Where was Ringo? Well, the drummer of the Beatles had a sore throat. Maybe more than a sore throat. Poor Ringo had to pass on the first stage of the world tour in 1964 as he had tonsillitis. It had been a phenomenal rise for this Liverpool band and the world tour would follow their initial tour of the UK. So the Beatles needed a drummer. In place of Ringo for the first eight concerts of the tour, including Hong Kong, was drummer Jimmy Nickel, who had the surreal experience of going from relative obscurity to worldwide fame, and then back to relative obscurity in the space of a fortnight. But Ringo rejoined, I believe, in Australia, 
So as officially constituted, or the official Beatles, those three signed. And the story, of course, as a lot of these stories, doesn't end there. Wes E. Pai was engaged, or certainly he was partners with a Singaporean beauty queen named Pixie Montero. And I know that she had entered in a Miss Malaysia beauty contest, but I believe she lived in Singapore. So what I understand is later in that year, Wes gave this signed President Hotel piece of paper to Pixie as a present, and then they got married. It may have been in 64, at the end of 64, maybe it was in 65, I'm not sure. But at a certain point, they went to Las Vegas seeking fame and fortune. They got divorced, Pixie remarried, a guy named John Weiser, and they had a kid or two, and those kid or two had a grandchild. And this signed, you know, Beatles thing was with Pixie for about 50 years. And then one of the grandkids was accepted to, I think, the Georgia Institute of Technology, a very good school in Atlanta, Georgia. And to help defray some of the tuition costs to chip in, they put this on the market. And yeah, story comes full circle. But there's one other bit to the story. And that is that when the Beatles returned to the UK, and they were not on BOAC, they were on Qantas, they stopped in the airport in Singapore, and there was a mob scene in Singapore. And I think it was reportedly something like 10,000 people or 9,000 people, something like that. Not all the Beatles got off the plane. I think George and John stayed on the plane. The other two got off the plane, Ringo and Paul. But who went on the plane to present the Beatles with gifts from, I guess, the people of Singapore and maybe Malaysia? None other than Pixie Montero. And what she gave them was four, let me pronounce this correctly, song box, which is a ceremonial hat. And she also presented a film contract with some Malaysian tycoon for the Beatles to be paid would seem to be some ginormous sum. And there's a great quote in the Singapore uh, Straits Times where Brian Epstein says, we will think it over. <laughs> so that is the story. We're actually at your office, which yeah. is just a stone's throw away. It's yeah. that we're in Star House, uh, just near the Star Ferry, of course. And uh, just up the road in Nathan Road would have been uh, the President Hotel. So it's interesting to see it on its original stationery and from, yeah. that, from that trip in 1964. Yeah, it's just a, a cool thing that <laughs> came on the market. And, you know, you just close your eyes and you pay because you're never ever going to see it again yes, it's right. a one-off thing <laughs> i'm happy that i have it yes the aspect of collecting we've talked previously about how you have to be fairly specific about what you're going to collect because um otherwise there's endless rabbit holes yep. but uh also yes when you do see something I mean, it must be quite exhilarating, though, when you when you discover something. And it may not always be famous. Or... No, you, you just come across something. And, you know, we talked about this before, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. So the other night I saw a known unknown. I had never been able to get anything related to the handover that was, you know, meaningful or I thought worth collecting. 
But the other night, I saw an invitation card from the Prince of Wales, now King Charles. I think it was June 28th, 1997, for, you know, invitees. It was not filled in with the invitee's name, with an invitee's name, to gather on his yacht, with, it was the Britannia, right, for dinner. I thought, wowee. So you say to yourself as a collector at that point, okay, the vendor's not asking a small amount of money. It sure would be better if I had the invitee's name, but am I going to be that selective and pass on this? Because somebody's going to take it. It takes on, you know, uh, new meaning now that Charles has become king. So I went for it. And, you know, there you go. So you just have to, you know, press the button sometimes and hope for the best. No, but all of them. I mean, I would imagine that each piece that you buy, there's. I, this is what I love about mm-hmm. it, is these multi-layered stories, because you've got the item, yeah. uh, what that represents. And also, but I also very much enjoy the provenance of yeah. that item. Well, like, what journey has it had before you got it? Well, we were just talking about something of a, you know, with a Saturn note, and that is a book of Hong Kong statutes and regulations it was volume one. It went from 1840 or something to, let's say, 1900. I bought it, talking about the journey things go through, from a vendor in Maine, all the way in the northeast of the United States, who got it because it was remaindered out of, I think, a New York State Bar Association library. So I thought, hey, this is pretty cool. So it arrived in Hong Kong. I opened it up, and I think I'd seen one photo of the title page. And I went, Wow. Printed in Stanley Prison, 1937 or 1938. I had never seen a Stanley Prison imprint. Kind of made sense that, you know, prisons are known to do printing. So that really kind of tickled my interest. But then I saw, you know, under the supervision of John Fraser, And I went, oh, yeah, I know that name, Fraser. I know that name, Fraser. Well, it's the guy who was one of the five George Cross winners. And just goes to show that when you buy something, it's not only what's within the four corners of the item you bought, it's the extrinsic, what's the word, exogenous, the association or whatever, because the the, the really sad irony here is that Fraser was tortured in the place where the book was printed, and he was killed, he was beheaded, you know, not far. So, yeah. Yes, yes. And uh, yeah, and you just open that opening page yeah. and that's where you see and it. Is, yeah. So you have to bring sometimes a little knowledge. I'm not saying I'm possessed with huge knowledge, but you know, you bring a little knowledge and you get lucky. And then there's this sort of synergy between, you know, getting lucky and, and knowledge. You know, in terms of uh, people ask, well, you know, you are a practicing lawyer. Yes, I am uh, in the customs and trade area which leads me down roads to collect uh, things from the uh, Chinese Maritime Customs Service, Robert Hart and all that. And I have a fair bit of things. How much time do you spend on this? And that really varies. But I would say an hour, two hours, you know, a day, you know, give or take. Um, I do a lot of buying through eBay. There's some fantastic things. I was going to ask you about that because I always find with, you know, when I'm talking to antiquarians or collectors, I feel, you know, should I be mentioning things like eBay? But there are some terrific things on there. 
unbelievable. I think there is this sort of um, anti-proletarian uh, impulse on the part of some of these snooty booksellers who I know also buy on eBay because I can see something I didn't get and then they put it on. But I think that that's been tempered a bit because some fantastic things appear on eBay, but also this, this world, Anne-Marie, of folks who are interested in the things that I'm interested in. It's not a very large world. The vendors um, get to know you, so I'll be approached by vendors. And then you, 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 know, you get lucky, but it's, it's, it's a fun world. But I mean, I've heard about people in England and now, I mean, obviously secondhand bookstores, yeah. but they'll also go to car boot sales. Yeah. Yeah, you can find some unbelievable stuff. My thanks to collector Roy Delbick there. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. Yeah.